Thanks for listening to the IIF's Global Regulatory Podcast, where we discuss today's pressing topics in financial regulation. My name is Andres Portilla. I'm Head of Regulatory Affairs here at the IIF. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Doug Elliott, partner at Oliver Wyman, and someone who is very well known to anyone who cares about financial services, risk management, and regulatory policy. Doug has had a long career as a banker at JP Morgan, as a consultant at the IMF, and as a fellow at Brookings. I've known Doug for a number of years, and I've always been quite impressed by his analysis and his sharp commentary. It's a great pleasure to have you today here, Doug. Thank you very much, Andres. Always great to see you. Doug, I really enjoyed reading your recent paper on the key five financial policy issues in 2022. I know it was not easy to narrow down the analysis to only five issues. So tell me what those issues are and why you picked them. Sure, I'll be happy to. And I, I got to tell you, I actually would probably drop one of the five and add a different one if I had to do the five now. Uh, but uh, overall, two of them are just long playing issues that are relatively novel. That is digital asset policy, whether that's about central bank digital currencies or stable coins or other digital assets, and then climate risk in finance. The other three are about vulnerabilities that I know policymakers are concerned about. One of them is what happens if we have a persistent level of high inflation. Obviously, there's a lot to talk about there. It would have ramifications for financial services. There's also a fear about market fragility, both price levels and structural fragilities that still exist in that case in the fixed income market. And then the final one is we don't actually know yet what corporate insolvency issues will develop as a result of the pandemic as the government support finally winds down completely in jurisdictions. It's not nearly as big an issue as it seemed, say, 15 months ago, or at least we hope it won't be, but it's still there in the background. That's really interesting, and we'll get into those issues during the podcast. I wanted perhaps to start with two of them, which are obviously the inflationary environment that we're experiencing. Um, the likely, well, and we will see it probably quite soon, um, higher interest rates and the consequences of that. And obviously, the impact that all that might have for um, asset prices, potentially asset bubbles, and then in general, market fragility. Sure, Andres. And uh, it's an intriguing set of issues. And one I find comes up when I talk with senior policymakers very frequently, because start with the inflation. We've not been in an environment where we've had to worry much about inflation heading up for 20 or 30 years, depending on jurisdiction. One of my worries is I don't think the financial sector or its regulators are really prepared were we to find ourselves in that environment. Now, I should stress the senior policymakers I speak to at central banks, finance ministries, financial regulators, I'm not sure that any of them thinks this is the base case. But virtually all of them, like me, believes that it is a plausible downside case in a way that hasn't been true for, again, 20 or 30 years. And the unfamiliarity of executives and policymakers, or at least the fact it's just a vague memory at this point, produces potential risk in terms of responses. 
But even if everybody were on top of their game and well prepared for this, if you have a significant increase in inflation for a prolonged period, you will have higher interest rates for sure. And it may be that the bankers who are listening, because I do hear this from a lot of bankers, many bankers react to this with a very straightforward uh, positive feeling. They say, higher inflation, bring it on. I'll have higher interest rates. The yield curve will slope upward again in a bigger way. I'll make money off deposits. So why are you worried? This is good news. But I think that misses several factors. First of all, it's actually making a significantly bigger assumption than I think bankers focus on, which is if you think about the yield curve, if you ignore central banks for the moment, an environment in which near-term inflation is higher than medium-term inflation, which is what we're facing right now. That is, the concern is that the 6 7% inflation rates we're seeing, that part of that will feed through for the longer term. Very few people I talked to are worried that it goes up from here. They're just worried that it won't go down enough. Well, just looking at the economics, that describes an inverted yield curve. That doesn't suggest we should have a positively sloped one. Now, central bankers will almost certainly keep interest rates in the short-term interest rates lower than that scenario would suggest. So I do think it'll probably be a positively sloped yield curve, maybe even more positively sloped than now. But that's an assumption. That's assuming that central banks in an inflationary environment will be comfortable keeping short-term rates low enough to have that shape to the yield curve. And there's a chance that that won't be feasible. So that's one example. A second sort of broader, almost theoretical point is this environment, if it happens, is going to be more volatile with more uncertainty. There will be winners, there will be losers. That's not a good environment for banks. Heterogeneity is not your friend when you're making loans because the winners may do great, but they were going to pay you back anyway. You don't get that upside. The losers won't be able to pay you back and you lose. So when you own the downside and not the upside, you'd rather have much more uniform results where everybody does okay, not ones with real winners and losers. And then, as we've already touched on, my biggest worry are the indirect effects, and in particular, the possibility that financial asset prices might come down very substantially, and that that could feed through into the rest of the financial sector. So why am I worried about that? First, I'll confess to a conservative bias here, which is I, and most policymakers I speak to, believe that prices of risk assets like equities, but not just equities, are very richly priced almost everywhere. And I, and many of them believe, parts of those markets are in actual bubbles. So if you start with a belief that prices are simply too high, then it's very reasonable to expect they'll come down when something brings us back to reality. Now, my caveat I have to make is I've been too conservative for most of my life about pricing of risk assets, particularly equities. So perhaps I'm going to be wrong yet again. But there is at least a real possibility that we have overvaluation in a significant extent. 
if that's the case, you could see a quite substantial fall with three components to the decline. One component is going from where prices are now to where they should be in this environment. Second component is in a worse environment, like with higher interest rates, moving from where prices should be in this environment to where they should be in that worse environment. And then the third component is when you get that big a move, you virtually always overshoot. So you could see this, you could see this get pretty ugly in some of these environments. And I worry that we're going to look back at Arkegos, at the losses there, and see this as the harbinger of much worse, just as the SockGen housing funds back in 2007 turned out to be a really good indicator that we had wider problems when they hit trouble. So think about Arkegos. They managed to lose their banks $10 billion making long bets in a bull market. Just think about the amount of risk that must be out there if we have an actual bear market, especially when you combine it with the fact we're now talking about, in this hypothetical, an environment in which fixed income does very badly because interest rates have gone up. So having the equity market go kerflui is bad enough, but when you throw in the larger fixed income market, turning south in terms of prices. There's a lot that could go wrong there. And then just to round out my little monologue here on the markets part, I also worry because we have seen a number of fragilities in the fixed income markets that showed themselves in 2020. And a number of those were true back in 2008, 2009 as well. Not all of them, but some. So we have these market fragilities in fixed income. Policymakers are aware of them. They've identified them. They're planning to do things, but they've done almost nothing so far because these are long processes. So if we hit this bad scenario in the next year or so, we haven't fixed those problems yet. So you could see, if nothing else, you could see the central banks have to come in on a still more unprecedented scale. They came in big in 2008. They came in significantly bigger in 2020. I'd hate to see them have to come in even bigger in 2022 or 2023. That's all really, really fascinating. And it's quite about a turnaround in terms of policy concerns, right? I mean, how many papers and conferences were in low for long and, and the impact on financial services of low interest rates. And now we're starting to worry about the opposite, right? And as a lawyer, I always think in terms of the implications for regulation and, and supervision, right? So asset prices, et cetera, I, I'm sure financial regulators are going to have this concern sort of on top of their list. Absolutely. And I can guarantee you they do have it well up on their list. Yeah. I wanted then to switch gears to one of the biggest topics, certainly for the last couple of years. And I think in your paper, you're saying... It's going to be also for 2022, which is climate, sustainability, uh, the environment, and, and the impact on financial services. Um, when I talk about these, these topics, I always quote uh, Carolyn Rogers from the Basel Committee, who was saying that as a regulatory uh, and as a supervisor, uh, she's concerned about, or she was concerned about, the impact of climate on banks and not necessarily the impact of banks on climate. And I think a lot of the discussions that are taking place uh, these days are around what is the role of 
policymakers, financial regulators, financial supervisors. So tell me how you see uh, this area of policy evolving in, in 2022 and what, what are sort of the, the key issues at stake there? Certainly. And you started off by pointing to a really fundamental issue. Now, it's one on which the regulatory and central banking community is virtually unanimous, and I would agree with them, which is that the best way for financial regulation to deal with climate risk is to deal with it as a risk. That is, it is a big issue for society as a whole, but it's not, I believe, the role of the regulators to fix the larger climate problem because they're not very well suited to doing that. It's not their expertise. It's not their legal role. And by and large, they have democratic legitimacy in that they're appointed by democratically elected officials, but they aren't those officials. Something as big an issue as this for society should be decided more directly by our elected representatives. So I'm with the vast majority of that community that believes the proper focus is on the risk for the banks themselves. Now, that's tough enough to figure out. And broadly speaking, when regulators focus on climate risk for the first time, you see them go through three phases. In the first phase, it's simply focusing on it as a financial risk and therefore ensuring that there are risk management approaches appropriate to those risks. And, and that's kind of where the Fed's been the last year or so, basically just making sure they understand how banks are thinking about climate risk, making sure they have appropriate procedures. As you do that, you pretty quickly figure out you don't have the data you need because understandably, this hasn't been collected in the past. So there's a whole bunch of issues about figuring out what the right data is, how to standardize it as much as possible, how to report it, et cetera. And then you get to the third phase of risk management, which is to try to quantify what the level of risk is. You know, and for that, the central banks and regulators have been coming up, uh, as they have for other financial risks, with stress tests. Now, they will all call them scenario analyses because they don't want them to be confused with the kind of classic stress tests in which you assume a financial crisis. And they're right to make the distinction, but everybody else in the world calls them stress tests, so they're going to lose that nomenclature argument. So I'll stick with stress tests. When you try to do these stress tests, you face some problems and then some conceptual choices you have to make. A significant problem is that unlike mimicking a financial crisis, we don't have any past episodes. We can't look back and say, well, typically what happens is X because we've never been through it before. So there's definitely more, more guesswork here of necessity, which leaves you with some conceptual issues. The first one of which is, do you want to focus on a typical kind of stress test duration, say, look out for the next two or three years? Or do you want to look out at 30 or 40 or 50 years because this is a long-term issue? There's arguments for both. And they intersect with another conceptual question. Do you want to focus just on physical damage, in which case you need to look at the longer time frame? Because frankly, 
the level of physical damage that will hit the banks in the next few years is pretty low compared to their size. It's not clear that you should spend a heck of a lot of time trying to figure that out, even though over the long run, the, the effects of those physical risks could be quite large. On the other hand, uh, this would push you, if you do a shorter time frame, it pushes you towards thinking about policy actions and the actions of investors and other stakeholders. So you could have transition policies like, say, a $50 a metric ton carbon tax, something of that nature that could seriously affect the clients of the banks and therefore affects affect whether the banks get paid back on their loans or make money on their investments. Similarly, you could see that investors would just decide they don't want to own oil companies anymore or coal companies or whatever. So you could see that prices for those types of assets could drop sharp. So these are, assuming those things in a stress test is a kind of proxy for the ultimate long-term cost, but structured in a way that's more plausible in a stress test as something that could occur over the next few years. Now, an issue that then arises, and I've skipped a few points, I think, but let's say you figured out how to do your perfect stress test. Do you then use that to set some additional capital requirements in addition to what you come up with from your normal financial stress test? And that's tricky. First of all, you won't have my hypothetical perfect stress test. So you've got to decide is it remotely good enough to be using for that purpose? But you also have the issue, if you just take whatever answer it gives you and add that to the other capital requirements, you're essentially assuming a 100% correlation between when you have a financial crisis and when you have climate-related losses. And it's got to be the case that the correlation is much closer to zero than it is to 100%. So how do you deal with that? It's a tough issue. And none of the regulators or central banks I speak with want to use those scenario analyses to set capital charges because of the types of issues I just described. But I believe they're going to be under enormous political pressure to have capital charges in some way related to climate risk, which in a broad theoretical level is certainly a reasonable request, even though it's very hard to do right. This, therefore, tends to push it towards putting it in risk weights. And of course, there are many people in the European Parliament, for example, who are pushing for so-called green supporting factors, which would bring down the risk rates for green stuff. Similarly, you could push up the risk weight for brown stuff, you know, with brown penalizing factors, and reflect the fact that when we first came up with the risk weights, nobody was paying attention to climate risk and therefore it presumably isn't in these buckets. It's hard to do. It's hard to figure out which things are green and which things are brown and by how much, particularly the how much part. So one of the things I'm concerned about is if the regulators do move towards lowering risk rates for green and raising it for brown, my intuition is if for the sake of example, you take a bucket that has 100% risk weight now, like uh, commercial loans, if you took out the green stuff, probably the risk weight there should be 90 or 95%. It wouldn't be immensely lower. And the brown stuff would be, say, 105, 110, 
you know, if you have it narrowly enough defined, maybe there's some that's like 115. But because the great bulk of the risk will still be from the standard financial crisis type issues, it's probably not going to immensely change these weights. But if you're a supervisor who proposes that we'll take the 100 and make it go now from 90 to 110, you are going to be pilloried. You're going to have people who absolutely say, you're just pretending to take account of climate risk. Because I do think there's a confusion, an understandable confusion in the popular mind between the potentially existential crisis we face as a world and the level of risk for the financial system compared to the huge levels of risk that exist in a financial crisis. This stuff's really hard, Andres. It'll be interesting to see what we figure out. There is a lot to unpack on what you just said. And one of the issues that I've been thinking a lot recently is whether the existing regulatory framework as we know it, particularly for regulatory capital, is fit for purpose, right? I mean, we've, we've all lived under the, the Basel II world where we have capital being set for unexpected losses under a one-year horizon, right? So is that framework suitable to address these type of risks that have a much longer maturity um, and, and a different conceptual uh, basis to be determined? And then, in addition to that, is climate risk a risk per se or is it a risk driver? How much capital that is already allocated to credit risk today is already accounting for some, or at least part, of those climate-related risks? So I think there are a lot of questions that haven't been answered, and it seems premature at this stage to be able to come up with a specific capital charges. But, but I am very aware of the political pressures that you allude to, and I think that's going to be a big driver of decisions in, in policymaking. Do you agree with that? I do agree with that. Absolutely. Though I will say one comment. I do think it's really hard to make the argument that some portion of climate risk was already included in the capital calculations. I think zero part of climate risk was already included in the capital calculation, because how could it have been? Nobody was paying attention to that. And the calculations were generally based on backward looking on history. You looked back at financial crises, or you looked back at historic loan losses, and you used those to the extent there was an analytical basis for what came out of Basel, because there was also a heck of a lot of politics. But to the extent there was an analytical basis, it was all based on history which had no climate risk in it. I spoke with a senior regulator not long ago, and he said, well, we basically have two options. We can wait and develop these methodologies, capture the data, let practices mature, or we go for a Basel one type of approach. And we have a short table with very crude risk weights, and that's a way to start. Then we let the market build on that and we move forward. I'm not sure which one they're going to pick, but I know this is the kind of dilemma that regulators and, and policymakers are facing today on this topic. Yeah, and I will add, I was speaking at length with one of the most important bank regulators in the world, and for obvious reasons, I won't say who, but they were saying to me that because of their concerns about how to properly do capital calculations to account for climate risk, they're working really hard at non-capital methods of dealing with climate risk because they're hoping, first of all, that those would be good in their own right. And second of all, that this might defer or push back to some extent on the pressure to do something with capital. But even they thought that was in some ways a losing fight 
politically, they're going to be forced eventually to directly put into capital. I think that's that's absolutely right. Let's shift to the other big topic of the year, which is crypto. Um, this week here in Washington, we're having hearings in Congress, lots of discussion of regulatory policy uh, on, on crypto. And then I use crypto as shorthand for a wide range of, of different assets that are new coming out every day. How do you see policymaking evolving in this area over the next year? Well, that was sort of a straight line, and then I see it proceeding in a very confused and incoherent manner. Now, one reason for that, as you know, I put out a paper called Crypto Assets, Tulips, or Dotcoms. And I called it that because what I wanted to do was to talk about what I've seen as the divergent views of different parts of the policymaking community around the world, the financial policymakers, as regards what I call them a little tongue-in-cheek, traditional crypto assets, ones like Bitcoin that aren't stable coin and aren't obviously central bank digital currencies. For these, I've realized from extensive conversations, there are basically four camps. So one camp thinks this is so self-evidently a bad thing, it'll go away on its own. Regulators don't need to act. There's almost nobody left in that camp. Most of them have moved over to camp number two which is, damn it, it hasn't gone away. It doesn't look like it's going to go away, but it is still the work of the devil. So let's keep it away from anything we care about, like the banking system or the real economy. And you've seen, look, China is clearly there. Russia might be there, given the central bank is trying to discourage crypto. There are other financial regulators who aren't quite that far along the line, but definitely view it pretty negatively because they don't see any particular social value to traditional crypto assets, and therefore they don't see why any risk should be taken. The third group I call the pragmatists. I'd say the Fed is there, Bank of England, European Commission for the most part, number of others. They don't particularly like these things, but they do think they're here to stay, they're likely to get bigger, and they're increasingly enmeshed with the financial system. And because they are, the right answer in their view is you need the appropriate laws, regulations, and supervisory approaches to deal with. And then there's a fourth camp, and these are mostly in finance ministries and governments, not so much central banks or regulators. And there may be 10% of the people I speak with in the policy community. They see these more like the dot-coms in 1998, which is to say, admittedly, huge amount of speculation, much of it based on ignorance and naivete. There was outright fraud, uh, all sorts of bad stuff. And yet underlying it was a massive economic transformation with the internet that has led to far more good than harm, even though it has led to some harm. I don't think people see crypto assets as being at that same level of importance, but there are many people who see it as providing important innovations for finance and for the world. And therefore, the focus of that group is let's be careful, but let's also not stifle the innovation. So I go into all this following up on my comment about incoherence, because it's really hard to get across the world or within a country or even within one regulatory agency coherent policy when there are significant portions of people who think crypto assets should be killed, others who think it should be channeled and yet others who think it should be strongly encouraged. And I also find that a lot of the discussions don't step back 
to talk about that first step of what's the social value. But if you don't think there's much social value, you're going to be a much tougher regulator than if you think actually there is a lot of social value, we just need to be careful. So I'm trying to encourage with this paper and in these types of discussions, people to be a little more open about what their actual starting premise is, because we need to find some sort of middle ground. And in the paper, I do propose one middle ground that's a partial answer, I believe, which is to look at how crypto assets compare to other financial assets, if you'll let me refer to them as financial assets. And I'll refer people to the paper if they're interested in that. I think it's an interesting approach. Happy to talk about the other types of digital assets, CBDC and stablecoins, but is there anything you wanted to uh, ask me or comment on, Andres, on those crypto assets? I'm very interested on your views on, on CBDCs because you know every single central bank around the world is, is working on the topic. Here at the IIF, obviously from a banking perspective, there was a big concern about disintermediation of the banking sector, right? If every single central bank is going to offer digital currencies at the retail level, you know, every citizen having an account at the central bank, um, then the question is, why, why should I have a, an account at a bank? But I know those concerns are well understood by the central banking community. But I think there is still an open question, right? Is, is the U.S., for example, going for a, a central bank digital currency? And the same for the euro. I, I think those two would be quite transformational. Obviously, China, where a lot of development is taking place. So tell me, what do you expect to happen? I mean, there's been a lot of discussion, but what do you expect to happen over the next year on CBDCs? Sure. So stepping back, when I talk about the policy arguments for and against a retail central bank digital currency, I find that the policymakers are divided about a third, a third, and a third. So there's a third who are highly skeptical, a third who are highly enthusiastic, and a third like me who are in the middle, because there are good arguments in both directions, and I could go into great detail about those. But the policy arguments are pretty balanced, which is in complete contrast to what's actually going to happen, because there are very strong bureaucratic and political tailwinds pushing us towards retail CBDCs. And so I think they are nearly inevitable. Uh, now, let me give you kind of a cartoonish version of why I think that, just in the interest of time. First, Libra scared the hell out of the central banks, because for the first time in decades, there was a plausible, not necessarily likely, but a plausible case in which they lost control of the money supply, which is their raison d'etre. So that alarmed them. And the ones who weren't already paying attention to CBDCs and stablecoins looked around and realized that China was five years at that point into moving towards a retail CBDC and was clearly going to keep moving forward as they have. And then you had Madame Lagarde move over to the ECB and become president there. And President Lagarde is very strongly in favor of a digital euro and has found a quite receptive audience in the politicians, finance ministries, et cetera, in Europe, as well as She's, I think the ECB, frankly, started a little bit negative on the topic, but they have, they have moved uh, by this point. So now, if you're in the rest of the world, you're looking and you're seeing the private sector moving in this direction, China moving in this direction, and Europe moving in this direction. Well, that's kind of the ballgame. 
how can you not be taking this at least very seriously? I do think for some good policy reasons, and even more because of the appearance, the politics of it, I do think this is going to happen pretty much everywhere. I think that includes the U.S. Now, the Fed has been particularly skeptical until now, uh, and that's why you saw them come out with a paper that, frankly, they could have put out 18 months ago because there was no new ground there. It's just it made sense for the Fed to put out kind of this background paper so they could start gathering other people's opinion. But the Fed is definitely behind uh, on this. So why then do I think that the Fed as well, that the U.S., I should say, because it's more than just a central bank decision, why is it I think the U.S. will do this when the Fed has started quite skeptical? Mostly it's because I don't think that the U.S. as the dominant currency in the world can just sit back and if 10 years from now, all the other major places have the retail CBDC, can just say, well, that's fine. You guys go ahead and play. Um, I, I think it'll become too much a part of the global financial system. We'll have to be there. Uh, so that's a very important thing. But also, if you look at the political makeup of the Fed, after February or soon thereafter, you'll have four Democrats and three Republicans on the Fed board. And for whatever, well, not for whatever reason, I, I could go in detail, but for a series of reasons, Democrats in the U.S. tend to be significantly more positive towards CBDC and less positive towards stablecoin and other private sector digital assets, whereas the Republicans are the opposite way around. You know, not everybody, but in a, as a generalization. So I personally think you're going to find a significantly more positive tone out of the Fed starting in six months or a year about CBDCs. Now, it's still, it's a multi-year process to design one of these. Uh, and I have, I've written on this. I have more papers coming out on this. You know, there's an awful lot you have to figure out to do this right. So they're not going to just snap their fingers and do it. But I think you'll find the tone turns more positive, maybe not as far as in Europe. But, you know, the ECB hasn't, has committed to nothing at this point. But it's really clear they're going to get there from the tone of what they've been saying all along. In the same way, I think you'll start to see indications the U.S. will get there. And one reason I keep harping on the tone is because that will influence the rest of the world, too. For example, there is no way that Canada just sits there without moving forward on a CBDC if they think the U.S. is going to. And similarly, it will influence the rest of the world. So that was a very long-winded answer to your question. I think retail CBDCs are nearly inevitable, and you'll see significant progress even here over the next year. I think you're absolutely right, and we'll see what developments take place uh, this year. But, but I'm pretty sure 2022 will be one where, where many of these decisions will be made. Doug, we're, unfortunately, we run out of time. Um, I think this means we need to have you back and talk about these topics again. Absolutely. You leave me you know, with the sense of, of the wide range of very important strategic choices and decisions that policymakers will need to make. So it'll be an interesting year. Thank you for being with us and discussing these important topics. Thank you, Andres. It was a pleasure. 
please join us for our next episode on third-party resilience with Jason Harrell from DTCC. And for more episodes of the GRU, please find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Thank you.